uh, at Joshua a little more in depth than we did the Pentateuch. Last week, uh, as I said, we did a flyby over the Pentateuch. Well, we're going to do a layover in Joshua. We're going to spend more than one week on this amazing book. And um, I have given you a preface that was written by Francis Schaeffer uh, back in the early 70s. Uh, he writes, Joshua is an important book for many reasons. Uh, for the history it records and for its internal teaching. But what makes the book of Joshua overwhelmingly important is that it stands as a bridge, a link between the Pentateuch, that is the writings of Moses, and the rest of Scripture. It is crucial for understanding the unity of the, the, that the Pentateuch has with all that follows it, uh, including and leading up to the New Testament. Now, uh, just by way of review a little bit, if I say to you, what is the Pentateuch? What is the answer? Speak up. First five books, who wrote them? Moses, what's the first one? And it means beginning. Hey, you're doing great. You get an A so far. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. And uh, those are the books that Moses wrote, uh, and possibly also uh, Job. And uh, then we come to Joshua. And the book of Joshua begins by saying, Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, this is Joshua 1, verse 1, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun, will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded to you. Do not turn to, uh, from it to the right or the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. And Joshua 1.8 is one of my favorite memory verses. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night 
so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then I will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Uh, God meets Joshua. Uh, remember Moses at the end of uh, the book of Deuteronomy goes up on a mountain and God enables him to look over into the promised land. But Moses was not allowed to set his feet in the promised land. Do you remember why? The second time that they were without water, um, God told Moses to speak to the rock, and the rock would gush forth water for the Israelites. And Moses was frustrated with them. And uh, he got up in front of them, and I think uh, anger sort of took over. And uh, Moses took his rod, and the second time in their wanderings, he struck the rock and he said, you stubborn, hard-hearted, stiff-necked people, do I have to strike this rock again and uh, get water for you from the rock? And God said to Moses, Moses, you didn't do what I asked you to do. And because of that, you will not set feet a foot in the promised land. And you may say to yourself, wow, that is a huge penalty for not, excuse me, I've got to get this out of my way, end up eating it. That's a huge penalty for just striking a rock. I mean, what's the big deal? But everything that happened in the Exodus, in the wilderness wanderings, in the building of the tabernacle, and in the journey of the Israelites from Egypt to the Promised Land, happened for a reason. And God was giving an illustration uh, and laying the groundwork for the plan and message of salvation. And let me ask you, how many times was Jesus struck when and I don't mean specifically like in the beating but I'm talking about how many times did Jesus have to die for us in order to bring the living water once right Moses without being fully aware of it or maybe even he was because I think he had special insight He broke a type of Christ's crucifixion. He damaged a type. By striking that rock the second time, uh, the implication symbolically was that every time there was a need, Jesus would have to be crucified again. Oh, does that remind you of something? By the way, Services that conduct a reenactment and re-enablement of the sacrifice every week. Yeah. One time is sufficient for the rock to be struck. And so Moses 
violated something very special that God was laying a foundation for. And in doing so, uh, God said to him, Moses, you should have done what I asked you to do. And so Moses accepted that uh, consequence. And he went up on top of the mountain and God graciously allowed him to look over into the promised land. And then we learn in Joshua that Moses died there and that God came to him and took him into his presence. You know, the worst thing that can happen is not that we are taken into the presence of God, uh, particularly when you have an encounter with God such as Moses did throughout his lifetime, uh, or at least the 40 years of leading the Israelites, speaking to God as a man speaks to his friend that he had developed a friendship with God that was so intimate and so close that uh, in the last of his days, he spent that time on the mountain in God's presence and then breathed his last and breathed new air in the presence of God. Um, Moses went into his presence. And Joshua became the leader who had been anointed uh, by the Lord and had really been Moses' assistant and had been the general of the army throughout the wilderness wanderings. We don't have time to go back and read all of that. But I wanted to spend a few moments this morning talking about the typology that exists in uh, these Old Testament books, the rock being one of them, and who is the rock? Who is the chief cornerstone? Who is uh, the, the foundation, if not Jesus Christ? And throughout these Old Testament books, we have uh, examples, we have types, we have pictures of Jesus. And they speak to us of the spiritual truths of salvation. And so I want to take a little bit of time this morning. Um, a good outline, by the way, is supposed to be balanced. You should not have a Roman numeral 1 if you don't have a Roman numeral 2. But you notice that this is part 1, and Roman numeral 2 begins next week. They go together. And uh, it's really one message that uh, can't be given in one sermon. But one of the things that I want us to, to look at this morning are the hermeneutics and the application of interpreting Joshua. Now, for those that are not familiar with the term hermeneutics, hermeneutics is the process or the science of interpretation. Uh, some would call it an art. Uh, it is uh, the, the principles by which we approach a text and seek to find its meaning. And when we come to Scripture, there are some basic principles of interpreting the text that are very important for us to understand. And one of those, and I see people make this error all the time, is that a text can have one and only one meaning. Sometimes you hear people talking about the Bible and, and they'll say something like this. Well, this passage means this to me. 
And somebody else says, well, it means this to me. And somebody else says, well, it means this other thing to me. Well, it only means one thing. It only has one interpretation. Period. There's not two. There's not five. There's one interpretation. There may be other applications. And perhaps people are speaking of the application that the passage has to them, the way God speaks to them through a particular passage. But it's important for us to realize that any passage of Scripture only has one meaning. And it's understood through the study of the grammar and the historical context of the passage and can be expressed very simply this way. The Bible means... Exactly what it says. Um, Sometimes people approach the scriptures as if it were some mystical book. And when the the Bible says, uh, when Paul writes in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit, he is not saying that a scholar in English literature cannot understand the Bible. A a person that has a PhD in English literature and whatever can certainly understand the Bible. The problem is, once they understand it, they don't believe it. It doesn't make sense to them. Why would a person who wants to be first volunteer to go last? That makes no sense. If you want to be first, you've got to give it your best shot and and move forward and and climb the ladder and, and do your best to get up there to the top of the rung. That's what makes sense. And so what... Uh, Paul is actually saying to us is the natural man, he can understand what it says, but it doesn't make any sense to his natural mind to do what it says. It can only be understood by those who have a spiritual perception. Those who are willing to be a servant in order to see God move them forward. And so the Bible, in essence, has only one meaning. And when you apply grammatical principles and the grammar of the sentence and the syntax, and you put it within its historical context, you can discover that meaning. And that's what it means. And then after that, you have to prayerfully find out what... (laughs) God is saying in terms of the application and how to understand it as a follower of Jesus Christ. What is he saying here? I can read what he says, but what is he saying here to me? For example, the Bible can only be interpreted figuratively when the plain sense of the words would be literally impossible. Now, let me emphasize that. There are times when we have to read the Scriptures and interpret them figuratively, symbolically. 
but that is only warranted when the plain meaning is impossible. And it has to have some other meaning or some other quality about it. For example, Jesus says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6.54 Now then, how do you get saved? How does a person become saved? Somebody tell me. Come on, you're all saved, aren't you? <laughs> Almost all of you. How, how did you get saved? <laughs> Accepting Jesus. What did you accept? That you're a sinner. And that he died for you. And paid the price for your sin, came out of the grave, so that you could have life. And how do you get salvation? You say, Lord, with all my heart, I repent of my sin, and I trust you as my Lord and Savior, the one who paid my debt. I trust you, and I commit my life to you. That's how you get saved, and you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You don't get saved by eating his body and drinking his blood, do you? No, that does not save you. What is he talking about? Well, he doesn't mean eat my body and drink my blood. That's not what he means. He means something else. Peter says we are partakers of the divine nature. What happens when you come to Christ in faith and you receive Him as Lord and Savior? How do you get eternal life? Life eternal is in Him. You get eternal life because you take Him for yourself. You draw your life from Him. He is the vine, you're the branch. You take your life from the source of the vine. To eat his flesh and to drink his blood means that you receive the life of Christ in place of your own. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ, but I'm living. But I'm not the one living. Jesus is the one living in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Galatians 2.20 Paul says, I'm living a life that is Jesus' life. I'm taking him as my life. And I have died to myself. And I'm resting in him. So clearly Jesus is talking about something else here in John 6 other than literally eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He's talking about um, receiving his life, which comes through faith and trust in him. Now, to be honest with you, if you look at John chapter 6 and you study what's going on there, here's the context. He's trying to provoke the Jews. He is deliberately saying things 
that he knows will infuriate them. And he's doing it to get them to think. Sometimes the only way you can get people to think is by making them angry. <laughs> You've got to stir them up. And uh, most of them didn't like what he had to say. In fact, they, they left. They all turned and walked away. So that Jesus turned to his disciples and said, are you going to go too? And they said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life eternal. And so Jesus was seeking to provoke them. So he was deliberately using terms that uh, the Jews would have particular objection to in order to uh, gain their attention. So secondly, so are you with me there? You can only interpret the Bible figuratively when it is impossible to take it literally. I used to think that when Jesus said, I am the door of the sheepfold, that he was speaking figuratively. Because when you think about it, <clears throat> this is a door, and it has hinges, and we open and close this door, and we think to ourselves, well, Jesus is not a door like this. Well, I forgot to take into account the history, the historical context. When a shepherd was in the field, they took briars and, and uh, brush and whatever, and they created a circle that was the sheep fold or sheep pen, and the various shepherds would drive their sheep into the pen and one of the shepherds would sit in the opening. They were literally the door. And they would sit in the opening and take turns taking guard. And so Jesus may very well have been saying, I am the door of my sheepfold. I'm the one that sits in the door and protects and watches over the sheep. That may not even be figurative. That may be quite literal because I had in mind a door that swings on hinges uh, into a room. But he was talking about something very different. So, so be careful when you think you've got a figure of speech on your hands <laughs> that you may actually have a literal truth on your hands. Uh, it may be different than what you expect. Secondly, the Bible has symbolic and metaphoric or allegorical passages, but they are rooted in a historical context which is literally true. In other words, the event which has symbolic meaning actually happened in time-space history. <clears throat> Who does Jesus say he is going to be like as he dies and goes into the grave for three days? Who is he like? Jonah. Jo he's like Jonah. Okay. So does that mean that Jonah is just a, a story that was made up? So Jesus could use it as an allegory? No. Jonah was a historical person who was actually swallowed by a big fish. 
and spit up on the shores of Nineveh. You won't go there by boat. I'll get you there the way I'll get you there. You don't have any choice about going, Jonah, just how you get there. If you want a fish, I'll give you a fish. So Jonah is a literally true historical event. But it has application in a metaphoric meaning about the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And that's important for us to recognize. Because there are many, and this is where Joshua comes in, by the way, there are many places in Scripture where the historical narrative is also a symbolic or metaphor of something that has to do with Jesus in the future. So that we're gaining a picture of a spiritual reality that lies before us. The, the temple, the tabernacle in the wilderness is a marvelous example. I, I, can, I could take, if we had months, we could study the tabernacle and I could show you how virtually every single component of the tabernacle is some reference to the person of Jesus Christ and our relationship with Him and the sacrifice that He made and the presence of God in our lives. It is just amazing how the tabernacle paints a picture for us of the spiritual life. But there was a tabernacle. And the reason that it had to be built exactly according to the instructions that God gave to Moses. When, and he said to him, be sure that you build it exactly as I've told you. Because every single part was significant. Everyone had a meaning. And that meaning was in ultimately in fulfillment of Jesus Christ. So when we come to study and look at Joshua as the bridge, as Francis Schaeffer puts it, between the Pentateuch and the rest of the Bible, leading us even into the New Testament, and we look at that bridge, Joshua is a book of history that is factual, literally true. This is how it happened. And when they marched around uh, Jericho seven times in seven days, and then seven times on the seventh day, and those walls just came crumbling down, that literally happened. That's precisely what happened. And on through the book of Joshua, as they engaged in one battle after another, this is the history of the conquest of Canaan. But also, Joshua is part of the symbolism of the Spirit-filled life. It's rooted in the literal history of the conquest of Canaan, but it's a story of personal salvation from sin to spiritual victory. You don't hear so much uh, preaching about biblical typology these days. I, I, I don't know, it seems to have fallen out of uh, favor in some way. But a lot of the great preachers of the past 
uh, held forth the rich uh, metaphoric meaning of the Scripture and how it speaks to us of the Christian life. And there's no question that the typology of going from Egypt to Canaan is a picture of the spiritual journey. Egypt represents the place of sin. And the Passover and the sacrificial Passover lamb and the blood on the doorpost represents that moment of salvation. And they begin their journey into the wilderness. And friends, life without the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit is like a spiritual desert. In that place of dryness as believers is the law. And every Christian that comes to faith in Christ as a consequence of their repentance desires with all their heart to keep the law. If you don't want that, then there's legitimate reason to question your genuine conversion. The law is a picture of the character of God, and if you don't want to live like Him and please Him, then there's reason to question you. However, once you start trying to keep the law, it won't take you long to figure out that you can't do it. And and the tragedy of so many uh, teaching and, and so many denominations is that the Christian life is largely a life of defeat and frustration until finally we die and go to heaven where it finally gets better. Because we live our whole lives trying but failing to live up to God's standards. And and then in the end, uh, we die and go to heaven and things improve. And that is not at all the way God intended us to live. But he did intend for us to understand that we cannot live by the law. The law has no power to make us holy. It holds forth a standard that we cannot keep. Now, why would God do that? Because it's what it is. It's his character. If he lowers the standard, if he lowers the bar, we settle for something other than holiness. We settle for some low-class kind of Christian existence that tolerates sin. How do we come to that place of victory? Well, we come to the Jordan River and we are baptized in the Jordan and we enter into Canaan where there's a land flowing with milk and honey and where God brings rest to the weary one. You read the book of Hebrews chapter 4 and it says very plainly if Joshua had given them rest 
God would not have spoken of another day after that, saying, There yet remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has ceased from their labors has entered into his rest. That's why Jesus said, Abide in the vine. Rest in me. How much effort does it take to be a branch? What's your basic requirement if you're a branch? Just hang on the vine. That's all you have to do. And the life of the vine will flow into you and fruit will flow out of you. You you don't have to work to be a branch. You just have to hang in the vine. And there's a Sabbath rest for the people of God where you can rest in the Spirit and enjoy the life of Christ flowing through you. Paul says in Romans 8, 1, for what the law could not do because it was weak in our carnal nature, God Himself did, sending His own Son for sin And in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sin in his body. That the life of Christ might be demonstrated in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. That the law would be perfected within us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. God promises To bring us to a place where He is the one living through us. Not we ourselves trying it on our own. If you want to live in the desert the rest of your life, just keep on trying to keep the law. But if you want to live in the Spirit, you've got to move into Canaan. This does not destroy the historical reality of these events. But it demonstrates to us that God has written into the history of Israel a picture of the spiritual journey. And there is this uh, understanding that God is holding forth for us that Canaan is the place of rest. It's not heaven because there's enemies there. There are battles to be fought. And if you don't think the Spirit-filled life has some battles, well, I don't think you're there yet. Because it does have battles. And then in general application, the Old Testament teaching regarding spiritual warfare, Joshua has a parallel relationship to Ephesians much the same as Leviticus has a parallel relationship to Hebrews. As such, Joshua has many personal applications to us about the life of faith and the Spirit-filled journey. You know, there are many things we can learn about the conquest of Canaan that God can apply to us personally in our lives. For example... What did God tell them about Canaan? What did God say to Joshua? I have given you the land. Everywhere your footsteps, I have given you the land. Was it a matter of ownership? It was not. God had given it to them. But they had to go possess it. 
you know, God has given us a land of promise, rest, and blessing. But we have to possess it. We have to claim it for our own. When God said, I will part this Jordan River before you, how did that happen? When those priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant put their feet in the water, there was not one hint of the Jordan River parting until they stepped in the edge of the water. If they had stood there on the dry ground, two feet from the water, the Jordan would never have parted, and they would have spent another 40 years running around the wilderness. Because faith is the evidence, the substance of things hoped for, and the evidence of things not seen. And God said, you put your feet in the water, and I'll part the Jordan. And they had to believe that. They took that ark up and they started walking. And they intended to walk across the Jordan River at flood time. Because God had said, when the soles of your feet touch it, I'll part it. You know, there's a great personal lesson of faith there. We have to put feet to our prayers sometimes. And I don't mean we take one and work it out ourselves. I mean, we have to take God at his word and put our, put our feet in the water before we see the sea part, the river part. So there's so much to learn in Joshua. Next week, I'm going to hit some of these high spots. But uh, I want you to take home today the idea this is literal history. It is a bridge between the Pentateuch and the rest of Scripture. But it also has rich spiritual truth for us that is found in types throughout the book of Joshua. And we can learn a great deal about our own spiritual warfare by studying the book of Joshua. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that you have given us everything we need to know to uh, live the Christian life successfully. You have promised us a land of rest and peace. There are skirmishes and battles along the way, but you have told us that the battle is the Lord's. It belongs to you. We don't have to worry about it, but we do have to Take up the armor and go fight it. Lord, teach us to be those obedient servants who live and walk in your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.